and you're running for presidency. Tell us why. I've been doing TV and radio for 40 years, mostly criticizing politicians. I know how brutal it is. I know how your enemies will dissect things that you've said and put the worst spin on it or will even make things up. But I think I bring a couple things to the table the others don't. When they look at all these problems, what do they think? The number one social problem in America is not crime. That's a symptom. It's not bad schools, that's a symptom. And this whole victim mentality uh, is, in my opinion, almost a cancer within the black culture. My guest today is Larry Elder, TV host and political commentator. Larry just announced running for presidency of the United States. Larry Alder is born and raised in Los Angeles. In this episode, Larry will discuss why he is running and the issues he would address if elected. I just never thought we'd be we'd, we'd at, our, at each other's throats this way. I'm often called an Uncle Tom or a sellout or as one uh, columnist with the LA Times called me, the black face of white supremacy for saying these kinds of things because I refute the narrative. I'm CMI Karami, welcome to California Insider. Larry, it's great to have you on. Welcome. Welcome back. Nice to be back. Thank you for having me. You are a Californian and you're Native, running... Born and raised, guil guilty as charged. <laughs> and you're running for presidency. Tell us why. You know, CMAC, I have never run for anything before in my life. Never thought I would. I've been doing TV and radio for 40 years, mostly criticizing politicians. And I ran for third grade class president. And before you ask me, yes, I won that race. So I'm batting 500. Um, I ran for governor in the recall election because so many people I respect approached me and asked me to do it. First was Dennis Prager, uh, who is the person that got me into talk radio. I met him and he encouraged KBC to hire me, and, and they did. I've known him for 30 years. He's a great friend of mine. I have enormous respect for him, and he wanted me to run. And I said, I said, Dennis, are you crazy? We're outnumbered, meaning Republicans are outnumbered in California three to one. There hasn't been a Republican who's won forever. And if I win, because there are super majorities of, of Democrats in the Senate and the Assembly, what can I do? And I found out, much to my surprise, CMAC, that a bill that's been vetoed, and there were several that were vetoed by Schwarzenegger, the last Republican governor we had, not a single one has been overridden since 1980. What happens if you veto a stupid bill, you go forward, tell the people why it was st a stupid bill, and lo and behold, the legislatures don't have enough courage to override it. So there is some power you have. And then I was approached by my pastor, Pastor Jack Hibbs. He asked me to run. Uh, another woman who's a local activist named Jenny Sand, you probably don't know who that is. Uh, and a guy named Lionel Chetwin, who's a uh, conservative filmmaker. He did a film called Hanoi Hilton. They all approached me at individual different times. And they asked me to run. By the way, I know Jeannie. So you know all, all the ones <laughs> I just now mentioned. And, and they all encouraged me to run. And the more I thought about it, the more I said to myself, if you don't do it, who will? And if good people are unafraid to, are afraid to have their personal life uh, scrutinized and torn apart, which is what the newspapers do when they don't like you if you're a conservative, especially if you're a black conservative. If you're afraid to do that, then who's going to do it? So the more I thought about it, CMAC, I felt I had a patriotic, a, a, a moral, religious um, obligation to do it. And that's why I did it. And I got into the race with seven and a half weeks left before the, uh, the election, which isn't much time. We raised $27 million. It was a two-part thing, as you recall. The first part on the ballot is, do you want Gavin Newsom recalled? If 50% plus one said yes, whoever got the most votes on the replacement side would have become governor. 
I got 3.5 million votes, or 49% of all the total replacement votes cast. The next highest person got 9%. Uh, of the 58 counties in California, we carried 57 of them. The only one I lost was San Francisco, and lost that by about 139 votes. I didn't spend one minute campaigning there, or one dime on ad, TV, or radio, and we almost carried that one as well. We got um, 150,000 individual donors. Half of them came from outside of California. These are people who'd never been here before, didn't have businesses here, weren't going to come here, but they just knew California as the most populous state, as what is now the fourth largest economy in the world. If California could, could reject wokeism and left-wing politics and get back to being more centrist than the rest of the country could as well. That's what people felt. This episode is sponsored by Midas Gold Group. Saudi Arabia has said they are open to accepting currencies for oil other than the dollar. Kissinger set up a petrol business agreement with the Saudis in the 1970s, enshrining the US dollar as the world's reserve currency. This could be shattered. The grave consequences would be felt by every American. The Fed and politicians have abused the management of our monetary and fiscal policy. They have thrown an anchor on Americans with over $200 trillion in debt. That includes old entitlements. We also have the BRICS countries forming an alliance to control commodities we need. Would they give them up for devalued dollars? Will they back their currencies with commodities while we back with nothing? Is this the de-dollarization by many countries in the world that could destroy our currency? Now is no time to play games with your portfolio, which aside from your house is paper. Better trade some of that in for precious metals at veteran-owned Midas Gold Group. Call 855-322-GOLD. That's 855-322-4653. There's still time to get a gold IRA from the number one veteran-owned gold IRA dealer in the country. Midas Gold Group. Midas Gold Group, your vault of confidence. Now let's go back to the interview. When the race was over CMAC, my girlfriend and I, Nina, you know, we went to um, Key West in Florida. I've always thought of myself as a writer first, of all the things that I do. And I wanted to see where Hemingway wrote his, wrote his books. So we're in Key West, and I walk into a restaurant. Hey, Larry, I, I've, I, I've followed your race. I contributed. Dinner's on me. Hey, Larry, drinks happen over and over to the point where I gained almost 15 pounds. <laughs> I still haven't lost it all yet. But people said, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm going to go back to radio and TV. And they said, why don't you run for president? And they said it over and over and over again. And again, the more I thought about it, the more I felt the same way. I would rather not spend my winters in Iowa and in New Hampshire. I would rather not have my personal life um, torn up and, and lied about as happened during the, during the race. But if I don't do it, who will? And I know we've got good candidates on the Republican side. There's Donald Trump who's running. And I believe CMAC, he has a record to run on. I think Ron DeSantis is going to run. He certainly has a record to run on. There's some other people that are involved in it. Um, but I think I bring a couple things to the table the others don't. The Democrats are real good at claiming America is systemically racist and that virtually every issue has to do with race, whether it's inequality, whether it's bad schools, whether it's the alleged police brutality. Uh, it's all about race, 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 because the Democrats know the most loyal part of their base are black people. 
And as long as you can convince black people that they're under siege, that they're oppressed, and we, by the way, are the saviors, those guys over there, those dashly Republicans, they wear the black hat, we wear the white hat, they're going to get that 90 to 95 percent near monolithic black vote without which they cannot win. I can refute that in ways I think others cannot. My father was a lifelong Republican, uh, born dirt poor. I mean, really dirt poor. People say people are born dirt poor. My father never knew his father. He was literally thrown out of his house when he was 13 years old, a black boy, Athens, Georgia, Jim Crow South at the beginning of the Great Depression. He left home without anything in his pocket, goes down the street and picks up trash, uh, cleans out barns, does whatever he can. Ultimately, CMAC, he uh, becomes a Pullman porter. They were the largest private employers of blacks in those days, and he's on a train. And he's traveling all around the country. This little black boy from Athens, Georgia, is now traveling all around the country. And he went to this place called California, Los Angeles. In the 60s or 70s? This is, this is after, this is before the Second World War. Oh, This okay, is in okay. 1940s. 40s, wow. I'm older than I look. See, <laughs> <coughs> so adding all this up. Wait, so this was like in the <laughs> 1970s, right? And my dad came, you look my dad came <laughs> to Los Angeles, and he was amazed you could walk in the front door of a restaurant and get served. My dad always had uh, packages of crackers and tin cans of tuna because in the South, you couldn't walk into a restaurant and, 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 get, and get served. So my dad was amazed by this. It made a mental note, maybe someday I'll relocate to California. Pearl Harbor, my dad joined the Marines. And I asked my dad when I wrote a book about him, why the Marines? My dad gave two reasons. Anybody who's watching the show who's a Marine knows what I'm gonna say. Two reasons. Number one, they go where the action is. And number two, I love those uniforms. So my dad was stationed in Guam. He was in charge of cooking for the colored soldiers because the military was segregated by race in those days. My dad can look at a cake and tell you what's in it. So the war is over. He goes back to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he met and married my mom to get him a job as a short order cook. He goes to several restaurants and forgive my language. They all told him we don't hire niggers. This is a man who fought for his country, uh, World War II, and he comes home and this is how he's, he's treated. He goes to an unemployment office in Tennessee, Chattanooga, and the lady says, you went to the wrong door. My dad goes out to the hall and sees colored only, goes to that door to the very same lady who sent him out. My dad went home to my mother and said, this is nonsense. I'm going to Los Angeles where I was before the war. I'm going to get me a job as a cook and I'll send for you. So my dad comes out here to L.A. He walks around for a day and a half and they tell him, I'm sorry, you have no references. My dad said, I need references to make ham and eggs. They treated him the same way. They just didn't want to hire him. Yeah, yeah, treated him the same way. They're a little more polite about it, I guess. He goes to an unemployment office, this time just one door. Lady says, I have nothing. My dad says, what time do you open? She says, nine. What time do you close? She says, five. My dad said, I'll be sitting in that chair until you find something. My dad sat there for a whole day. She had nothing, came back the next day. She calls him up. She says, I have something. I don't know whether you're going to want it. My dad said, of course I'm going to want it. I'm starting a family. What is it? She said, it's a job cleaning toilets and Nabisco brand bread. My dad did that for 10 years, took a second full-time job at another bread company called Barbara Ann Bread for 10 years, cooked for a family on the weekend to make additional money because he wanted my mother to be a stay-at-home mom until the youngest of us was in at least middle school. And he went to night school two or three nights a week to get his GED. Wow. The man never slept, which is why he was so grouchy all the time. I didn't like my father growing up because he was always testy. You'd say something to him, he'd explode. I didn't realize until I was 25 years old and we had an eight-hour conversation, the man was tired all the time. You know, 15 minutes here, an hour here, 45 minutes here. And then you walk into a house with three rambunctious boys, I have two brothers, what kind of mood are you going to be in? And so 
Uh, my dad, as I said, was a lifelong Republican, and my mom and my dad used to have interesting debates across the kitchen table. Whenever was he a Democrat? Yes. And my dad said, Democrats want to give you something for nothing. When you try and get something for nothing, you almost always end up getting nothing for something. One of his favorite, favorite uh, expressions. And my dad also, also told my brothers and me the following. Hard work wins. You get out of life what you put into it. Larry, you cannot control the outcome, but you are 100% in control of the effort. And before you moan or groan about what somebody did to you or said to you, go to the nearest mirror, look at it, and say to yourself, what could I have done to change the outcome? And finally, my dad said this. No matter how hard you work, how good you are, sooner or later, bad things are going to happen to you. How you deal with those bad things will tell your mother and me if we raised a man. Racism has never been a less important factor than today, but it has never been a more important factor for the, for the Democrats to get black people angry, mobilized to vote for the Democratic Party, even though their policies, in my opinion, are hurting the very people that they claim that they care about. The other thing I bring to the table is the number one social problem in, the, in America is not crime. That's a symptom. It's not bad schools. That's a symptom. The number one social problem is a large number of children who enter the world without a father in the home married to the mother. Forty percent of all American kids now enter the world without a father in the home married to the mother. Seventy percent of black kids, half of Hispanic kids, 25 percent of white kids, which was the same percentage of blacks who entered the world without a father in the home married to the mother back in 1965. Now, why has there been this explosion? It's because of the welfare state. In the mid-60s, I think with the best of intentions, Lyndon Johnson launched what he called the War on Poverty, basically providing benefits to women who are unmarried, provided there's no man in the house. And from that point on, out-of-wedlock birth in America exploded. If you look at the line of the amount of money we've been spending since the War on Poverty, over $20 trillion, and you look at the line of out-of-wedlock birth rate, the line's parallel. That needs to be talked about. That is the 10,000-pound elephant in the room. And everything else we complain about, most everything else we complain about, has to do with that. Crime, bad schools, because of that. And we need to talk about it. We, meaning America, needs to talk about it. And our side, meaning Republicans, aren't, don't talk about it enough. So those are the kinds of things I want to talk about. And I think a lot of people, particularly black people, are unaware of some of the, the stats. There's something called the National Report Card. It's called NELB. And... 85% of black eighth graders, these are black kids who are 13 years old, 85% of them are neither reading nor math proficient at grade level. Wow. 85%. Half of them aren't even basic reading proficient. So a large number of black 13-year-olds in America are functionally illiterate. We need to have choice in school, but the Democratic Party and the Teachers Union are wedded at the hip, and Teachers Union do not support school choice. There are 13 public high schools in Baltimore. I'm not making this up. 13, where 0% of the kids can do math at grade level, wow. and another half a dozen where only 1% can. That's half of all the public high schools in Baltimore where either 0% or only 1% can do math at grade level, and they're all in the inner city. In Chicago, only 1 in 20 students in the Chicago government schools, 1 in 20 can do math at grade level. This is, this is a national scandal. It's appalling, and I think most blacks are unaware of it. The breakdown of the family. Barack Obama once said, a kid raised without a father is five times more likely to be poor and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in jail. A young black man, ages 10 to 34 years old, CMAC, is 13 times more likely to be murdered than a young white man wow. in the same demographic. Almost always wow. the murderer. Same demographic. Same demographic. Almost always the murderer is another young black man. Half of all the homicides in America are committed by and against black people. 
even though blacks are just 13% of the population. It's all because of the breakdown of the family. The values are not there. Uh, the adherence to Judeo-Christian values are not there. They're angry. They're mad at the world. They don't have a father. They're mad. And we don't talk enough about this. We have a very important announcement to make. Over the last two and a half years, as you know, we have been interviewing a lot of experts in California about what's going on. And over the last seven months, we've been working on a documentary that's examining why people are leaving California. I believe this is gonna be the most important documentary for the state of California. I highly recommend watching it and sharing it with all your friends, especially Californians. Here's a preview for you guys. The homeless problem is getting worse, it's not getting better. Crime is getting worse, it's not getting better. Regulations are getting worse, it's not getting better. People are bailing on California in record numbers. Showing more than half of Californians are considering moving. It might be harder to find a U-Haul than to find your next home. The exodus of people moving out of California is not new. No sane person would want to leave California if they could make it here. For the first time ever, people are leaving. In 2020, California lost 650,000 people. First time in my lifetime I've heard that. I'm leaving California. Why you should consider moving to heaven. We're gonna miss you guys. Several high-profile companies like Tesla have moved their headquarters. I'm out of here. This place is gonna sink. Watch, they already have high taxes. This is just the tip of the iceberg. California treats businesses like criminals and taxpayers like organ donors, and people get tired of it. Here's some of our costs. Drivers are paying at $7.39 a gallon. $3 million. This is like a normal house. Our problems are man-made. All you have to do is pay attention. Here is what I found. I can't be the only person who's seeing this. The California legislature can't go on forever like this. This is a form of self-destruction. When I came here 22 years ago, it was a different California. Where is the state headed? California will deteriorate. Where'd the money go? This is because of stupid policies. There's no other word for it. The politicians are making money off our problems. People were tricked. They're being lied to, and their way of life is being destroyed. There's a lot of people that you would be surprised by their stories. My entire family is leaving. You know, we left all of our friends behind. Hey, live a day or two in our shoes. We're going to lose the very core values that built this state. California's bad ideas go national really fast. And if California fails, the United States failed. So what does the black community think of all this? When, when they look at all these problems, what do they think? When I mention some of these problems, I'm often called an Uncle Tom or a sellout or as one uh, columnist with the LA Times uh, called me, whose initials are Erica D. Smith, oops. <laughs> I was called the black face of white supremacy for saying these kinds of things. A lot of blacks don't want to hear it. Uh, I think a lot of people think I, I'm blaming the victim. I'm not, I'm talking about social policies. Um, I did a documentary, CMA, called Uncle Tom, I, and it has a sequel called Uncle Tom too. And Uncle Tom is about the black struggle following the Civil War, when blacks were finally emancipated. And even then, brutal racism, Jim Crow South, 
KKK, blacks kept moving forward at a rate faster than right now. In 1940, 87% of blacks lived under the poverty line. 20 years later, 1960, that number had fallen to 47%. That's a 40-point drop in 20 years. That's the greatest 20-year period of economic expansion for black people in the history of America. Why? It was rare for a black kid to be born outside of wedlock. Very rare. In fact, some generations, some, some decades earlier than that, a black kid was slightly more likely to be born to a mother and a father married to each other than a white kid. Uh, also, blacks believe in God, uh, believed in entrepreneurship, uh, and believed in patriotism, even though America was not living up to its ideals. You fast forward, you have an organization like Black Lives Matter that the majority of blacks support. On their website, CMAC, it attacked the nuclear family as a superficial, artificial European construct. And of course, the co-founders are self-described trained Marxists. I'm not calling them that. They call themselves that, trained Marxists. Marx did not believe in God was an atheist who wanted to dethrone God, and Marx, of course, did not believe in private property, so therefore did not believe in entrepreneurship. So all the things that made blacks survive and thrive and grow after, uh, after slavery are currently under assault by the left. And I want to talk about that, and I think I can do that in a way more persuasively and maybe more passionately than some of the others can. Now, when you see all of this, how does that make you feel? There seems to be like a misunderstanding within the black community of what's going on. They're, they're being duped, they're being deluded, they're being indoctrinated, they're being misinformed. Uh, they're being led because it is in the Democrats' at disadvantage, as I said earlier, to make blacks think of themselves as victims, to believe that they are victims of oppression, of systemic racism, when in fact racism has never been uh, a less important factor than today. I mean, think about Obama's election. The man gets elected in 2008. Hillary was supposed to be the nominee. Uh, even many black members of Congress supported her earlier on. And along comes somebody whose name you can't even pronounce, Barack Obama, comes out of nowhere, and he ends up getting the nomination. He got elected with a higher percentage of the white vote than John Kerry did four years earlier. And when he walked into the Oval Office CMAC, he won with a little more than 52% of the vote. When he walked into the Oval Office in the third week of January 2009, his approval rating was 70%. How can that be? It's because people who didn't even vote for him said, okay, I don't want my taxes raised. I don't want capital gains raised. I don't want uh, something called Obamacare. But at least this guy is going to bring us together racially and put to bed the notion that you cannot make it in America because of systemic racism. And he did just the opposite. I don't know if you remember this, but the first time he had a chance to show people he was a guy they thought they hired was when his good friend, his name is Henry Louis Skip Gates, he's a law professor, a professor of uh, African studies at Harvard. This is early on in Obama's administration. Gates is black, he comes back from vacation and he lives in, in Cambridge and he forgot his door key. So he and, his, uh, and the cab driver push open the door. A neighbor saw it called 911, which is what you want your neighbors to do. A white cop shows up, sees this man in the house, doesn't know if he belongs to the house, so he very politely asks him to come out and show ID. And instead of cooperating, Gates said, I'll come out if your mama tells me to come out or something like that. He briefly got arrested, became this big deal, and Obama gave a press conference. And instead of saying what he should have said, he should have said, you know, a lot of these instances with the police involve a young black man who gets pulled over or stopped, and he refuses to cooperate. If he'd cooperated, Michael Brown would be alive. If he cooperated, Freddie Gray would be alive. You know, in, in, in all these instances. And I told Skip last night, I said, Skip, 
a role model for crying out loud. What are you doing? You're encouraging young black men to resist and to, and to not c comply with the police? Comply, you won't die. So I told my friend Henry Louis Skip, Skip Gates that he made a mistake, he should apologize to the cop. That's not what he said at all. Obama went on television and said, and I quote, the Cambridge police acted stupidly. And it ticked off police officers all over the country. And that was the foundation of what we really found out about Barack Obama. And then the next several years, uh, if I had a son, he looked like Trayvon. Uh, Trayvon Martin was shot and killed by that um, neighborhood watchman. By the way, the neighborhood watchman was found not guilty. And the jurors who spoke to the, to the media after the verdict said, race never came up. There were no blacks on the jury, but there was a black alternate. And the alternate said, had I been on the jury, I would have ruled also not guilty. Race never came up. So, but Obama made a racial thing out of it. If I had a son, he looked like Trayvon. Obama said, and I'm quoting, racism is in America's DNA. He gave an interview to a, uh, uh, a podcaster. Racism is in America's DNA? C-Mac, the first time Gallup asked white Americans if they'd vote for a president was, I think, in the, a black president was in the 1950s. And the percentage that said yes were in the 30s. Now only about 4% of whites said they would not vote for a black person if they thought he or she was qualified. So if it's in your DNA, how does DNA change? So if you're at home, you're watching TV, you're watching him give that speech, you're watching Obama talk about systemic racism, racism in your DNA, you're gonna believe it. And what will it do? It will affect your behavior. If you look at a graph, CMAC, of homework done by the average black kid, Hispanic kid, white kid, Asian kid, it's like this. Black kids down here, average Asian kids way up here, how much homework the kid does per night. Now, if there's some relationship between how hard you work and your results, you see the problem. Nobody black would deny that the reason Steph Curry is such a great basketball player is because he practices his free throw shooting and his jump shot for hours and hours and hours. Well, same thing with math and history and any other, anything else. If you don't put the time in, you're not gonna get the results. That's one of the reasons we're having such bad grades. Kids are not putting the time in. So if you tell people that you're a victim, why should you work hard? What's the point? Someone's gonna stop you anyway. So do you think these policies are making the black, young black kids to not try? Yes, and it's affecting their attitude and their mood. I mean, this, this whole business about reparations. You're not a slave. And the person over here is not a slave owner. And why should somebody who did nothing whatever to you to do to you pay for something that was never done to you? It doesn't make any sense. And this whole victim mentality uh, is, in my opinion, almost a cancer within the black culture. And I want to talk about that. Now, Larry, you actually became very successful uh, growing up in your family. S somehow, some way. <laughs> and what if you were growing up under the conditions today in a black family with this kind of thinking? With well, it's, it's, it's corrosive. Um, there was an article in Atlantic Magazine, which is a left-wing magazine, it talked about all the decisions that a young couple has to make when they're going to have kids, from um, the naming the kid to what kind of religion. But the number one factor, it said that the most important factor is what neighborhood you live in and whether that neighborhood has a lot of two-parent households. The more two-parent households, the better off you are. Um, a black kid raised, poor black kid raised by a mother and father, will have a better outcome in life than a middle-class white kid raised by just one mom. Uh, there are two think tanks uh, diametrically opposed to each other on most issues. One is called the Brookings Institution on the, on the left. Another one is the American Enterprise Institute on the right. And they disagree about all sorts of public policy issues, but they do agree on what it takes to leave to escape poverty. Number one, 
finish high school. And I would add one where you can really read writing compute at grade level. And all too often, because the schools are so bad in the inner city, that's not the case, which is why I support school choice. The money should follow the child rather than the other way around. Number two, don't have a kid before you're 20 years old. Number three, get married before you have the kid. Then get a job. Don't quit that job till you get another job. And I would also add this, avoid the criminal justice system. If you do that, you will not be poor in America. And if you don't, there's a very good chance that you will. Now, when you ran for the governorship uh, race here mm -hmm. in California, you, it was pretty, you went through a really harsh period of time, right? How was it? What was it like? It was about what I anticipated. You know, I've been talking about politics, as I said, for 40 years. I know how brutal it is. I know how your enemies will uh, dissect things that you've said and put the worst spin on it or will even make things up. And I know from watching the left-wing media how vicious they are, particularly when it comes to a black conservative, because I refute the narrative. The narrative on the left is America is inherently uh, problematic, uh, sexist, racist, um, and if a black guy from the inner city, as, as I was, whose dad cleaned toilets, comes along and says, I'm sorry, it's all about working hard. It's all about making sure that you invest in yourself and, and avoiding bad moral mistakes. And if you can do that, you'll be fine in America. That blows the whole narrative. So I'm an enemy. I'm an, a, more of an enemy than a white conservative is. And so um, I anticipated that. But I didn't anticipate um, a couple of things. It was somebody that uh, flat out lied about uh, our relationship, uh, said some things that were just flat out untrue. Um, I didn't anticipate that. What happens when you run for office is your campaign, top people put you in a room, and you dim the lights and roll down the shades, and he goes, Larry, tell me everything you've ever done in your life <laughs> that you would not want in the front page of the LA Times. I said, I'll tell you stuff I wouldn't want on the back page of the LA Times. So I said, I told him everything I'd ever done that I thought might be problematic, but that, that I didn't did not anticipate. I said, I've had a, a bad relationship with somebody and it ended badly and she may say some negative things about me, but I never thought some of the things she said she would say. Uh, and then I mentioned the other woman that called me the black face of white supremacy, Erica D. Smith. That was, that was pretty low. E even some other people in the media thought it was low. And by the way, when the race was over, I still had a few more months on my radio contract, and I invited her on my show to discuss her calling me the black face of white supremacy, and she, of course, wouldn't do it. What about the minimum wage? Some of the people I know, they actually said, okay, Larry doesn't believe in minimum wage, so he doesn't, you know, care about the poor people. <laughs> right. So that's, that's, what are your thoughts on that? Like the working, That was one of the more entertaining aspects of my race. I'm a syndicated columnist. And I've been writing a one column a week since April of 1998. That is 1,200 columns. So if somebody sat there and read every single one of them, try and find something that they could uh, argue made me unqualified to be governor. I wrote a column, several columns, where I, where I attacked the minimum wage. And so I'm having an interview with this woman, and she says, so you want people to work for free? I said, would you work for free? Do you know anybody who'd work for free? I said, how do you go from there shouldn't be a minimum wage to Larry thinks people should work for free? And I said, the damage done by the minimum wage is economics 101. Milton Friedman says it does damage. Uh, Paul Krugman, who's a left-wing uh, uh, writer for the New York Times, once wrote about the damage the minimum wage does. Virtually every single economist believes that the minimum wage do damage. It's probably one of the most researched aspects of all of economics, the minimum wage. So I said to her, the New York Times once had an had a, uh, editorial, not an op-ed piece, editorial, in 1987, 
ideal minimum wage is 0.00 and pointed out that the minimum wage hurts the people who have less skills the most. I mean, think about it. Somebody doesn't have very high skills, but you're requiring the employer to pay him here when his skills are only really worth here. So this person doesn't get hired. So the people that need the minimum wage the most, mostly uh, initially black people without very much education, or secondary wage earners in a, in a household, many of them are women, are the ones who get hurt the most when you artificially, artificially raise the minimum wage. Do you know that at one time, 1940-ish, a black teenager was more likely to be employed than a white teenager because he was able to bargain for his wages a little bit lower. So a black teenager was more likely to be employed than a white teenager, than a, than a white adult, uh, than a black adult until the minimum wage started getting higher and higher and higher and exceeding the teen's level of fair market value. That's when you find now half of all teenagers who look for jobs in the inner city in the summertime can't find jobs because you're telling an employer to pay them $12, $13, $14 an hour when they might be happy paying them five or six or seven. So you hurt the very people that you, are, that you think, claim you care about. Milton Friedman, Nobel laureate economist, once said, I regard the minimum wage laws as the most anti-black laws on the statute books. So I'm having this discussion with this woman and I said, who's your favorite economist? Because whoever she would have named, if it's a famous one, I would know about his position or her position on the minimum wage. And she went, I said, you can't think of one? And she went, I said, you know who Adam Smith is? She says, no. I said, he was the founder of modern economics. He wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations in 1776. You never heard of him? Mm. Milton Friedman? Friedrich Schuh, you never heard of him? Paul Krugman? He's probably the most famous economist in the world because he writes a column for the New York Times. She said, well, uh, I, my, my professor in college, I, I know that person. I said, what's his or her name? She couldn't think of it. I said, so here you are. You write about business. You write about economics. You can't think of a single economist and you're attacking me over, over the minimum wage? Now, on YouTube, that interview's up there, and it says Larry Elder talks with her about this, this, and the minimum wage. But if you watch it, they took it out so she wouldn't look bad, but they were too lazy to change the, change the headline. So if you're looking for it, it's not in there, but it's obvious it was removed. So I wrote a letter to them, and I wanted to get the tape, put it up, and they, to this day, won't give it to me. Now, Larry, when you were growing up, mm -hmm. did you ever think America would be like this at this time? I never thought lots of things. I never thought that we'd be at each other's throats the way we are. I mean, I've lost friendships over Donald Trump. I think almost everybody in this country has lost a relationship because of, of supporting Donald Trump or opposing Donald Trump. I, my mom, as, as I pointed out, was a lifelong Democrat. My dad, lifelong Republican. And they had civil conversations. They weren't at each other's throats. They disagreed vehemently. Uh, when Richard Nixon got in trouble because of Watergate, my dad defended him, my mom, my mom attacked him. But they didn't, they didn't divorce each other over this. I never thought we'd get to the point where we can't have a, a serious disagreement about abortion, I'm pro-life, uh, about uh, the borders, I think the borders need to be stronger, about school choice, uh, about the idea that racism is no longer a major problem, about taxes, about spending, without calling the other side fascists or Nazis, which is what the left does to people like myself. And I believe the venom is coming mostly from the, from the left towards the right. There are people who are venomous from the right going to the left, but not nearly to the, to the same degree. I just saw a study about the um, hundreds of, of uh, freshman students at Dartmouth. And those who were self-described as liberal were asked, would you room with a conservative? And those who were self-described as conservative were asked, would you room with a liberal? And the conservative said, sure, no problem. 
But the liberals said, are, are you kidding me? Hell no. Wouldn't want to live with, wouldn't want to be a roommate of a, of a conservative. You can't even at that level, 18 years old, figure out how to have a dialogue with somebody who disagrees with you. You don't, you don't believe you can grow from that? I never thought we'd be like that. I never thought there'd be something called Obamacare where you can require someone to purchase health care whether they want it, need it, or can afford it by law or face a, a penalty. I never thought that America would get to the, that point. Um, I never thought America would have a governor like Gavin Newsom that tells people by the year 2035, no more sale of new gasoline-powered cars because of this thing called climate change. The climate is always changing, CMAC. Um, the idea that, that we're going to die in 10 years, ex, uh, 20 years, whatever they say, they keep moving it, by the way, because we keep staying alive, and they change it from global warming to climate change. The idea that this whole thing would be driving policy is something I never would have thought because there is a good body of knowledge to, to suggest the thing is overblown, and the people are going to be hurt the most by force-feeding this so-called renewable energy, which costs a lot more than regular fossil fuel, or poor people. Um, I just never thought that. I never thought that if Roe v. Wade got overturned, and I always wanted it to be overturned, that the people who are pro-choice would not recognize all it does is put the issue back to the states. The way it was for all of our nation's history until 1973, when the Supreme Court, in its infinite wisdom, nationalized that issue. So we can't even recognize that this now gets down to the democratic level where, where it ought to be and debated out. I'm in California which is an avidly pro-choice state. I'm not. And I voted a couple times for measures that um, one would have had waiting periods, another one uh, for parental notification. They both got defeated soundly. And I didn't leave California because my fellow Californian felt differently. My job is to persuade them. And I just need to do a better job of persuading them. That's how I see it. I just never thought we'd be we'd, we'd at, our, at each other's throats this way. This really surprised me. I haven't seen this kind of vitriol since the Vietnam War, where families were were across a dinner table, not even talking to each other because of the Vietnam War. We're, we're at that point. It's even, it's a, I think it's even more vicious right now than it was back then. Do you think there is a way out of this? I do. I think that um, you need to have people, leaders, who can show that you can agree to disagree without being disagreeable. And um, uh, I like to think that I'm, I'm that, that kind of person. Um, when, my, when my race was over in, here in California, CMAC, I go to a restaurant on the west side of LA, which is all liberal, and I'm waiting for a buddy of mine, and he's late, and so I'm sitting there by myself, and there's a table with two ladies next to me, and I think they feel sorry for me because I'm sitting there by myself. So they start talking to me. And turns out they were both 85 years old. They'd known each other since the second grade, and one of them was celebrating her 85th birthday. It was very charming. They told me they were both Jewish. One was a, she called herself a human rights activist, and the other one was a psychotherapist. And then about 10 minutes into the conversation, CMAC, they both stopped. And one of them says, wait a minute, I know you. You're that Larry Elder guy. You ran for governor. <laughs> Guess who we voted for? I said, you didn't vote for me. And they said, how do you know that? I said, let's see. We're in the west side of L.A. You're both Jewish. One of you says you're a human rights activist. It doesn't take Colombo to put that together. You didn't vote for me. And they both admitted they hadn't. And then we talked for another 10 minutes. I said, tell me something. How do you feel about the quality of our public schools? And they said, it's hideous. And they both said they would never put their kid in a government school to save their lives. And they don't have any friends who, who do. I said, how do you feel about the way Gavin Newsom, uh, in my opinion, 
contorted science and shut down the state in a more severe way than any of the other 49 governors. We're outraged by it. I know people who lost businesses, they said. Uh, and it wasn't fair, they said, for them to, to impose max vaccine mandates and uh, mass mandates for government employees. Um, they know people who lost their jobs because they refused to get vaccinated. I said, how do you feel about the fact that people are leaving California for the first time in 170 years? And they both said they knew people who left California because of the taxes, because of the spending. How do you feel about the price of a home? And they both told me that they struggled to buy a home because the average price of a home in California is 175% above the national average. I said, how do you feel about the crime? Outrageous. They moved people who had been victimized. I said, so here we are completing each other's sentences, but you didn't vote for me. Have you ever had a conversation with a conservative Republican in your life? And they both said they had not. Really? Honestly? Also, when the race was over, um, I was, a, a massage therapist was recommended to me. So I go to her place, and I thought it was going to be in a building. It wasn't. It was in her house. And I opened the door, and I got smacked in the face with the smell of marijuana. Just and she had tattoos everywhere and, and piercings everywhere, and her hair was blue and green and this, that, and the other. And so she's working on my, on my body, and she's playing Motown music, which is my favorite genre of music. And a song would come on, and I said, oh, that was written by Smokey Robbins. He wrote that for David Ruffins, who was the lead singer of The Temptations at the time. Another song came on. That's, this is by Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye was killed by his father uh, on, on a street not too far from where I, where I grew up. And every time a song came on, I had a little story about it. She went, you know, I know who you are. You're the guy who ran for governor. I didn't vote for you. I had no idea you were this personable. I had no idea you had this kind of sense of humor. I said, well, you know, there are personable Republicans, and a lot of us have senses of humor. She didn't know any. Her whole world had been siloed into just Democrats. And so I just think a lot of people in this country have been segregated into their own tribes and don't realize that there are people in the other tribe who are personable, who are empathetic, who understand that you disagree, but we both want the same things. We want people to realize their God-given ability in America. If we can agree on that, then maybe we can go forward and, and not be at each other's throats. That's what I hope. You know, when I came here, what was fascinating, I, I actually went to, I started watching football. And you know, and as, a, as an immigrant, when you come in, you don't know football and you're like looking at it, you see these big guys killing each other in the field. The fascinating part to me was in the stats. You look at the audience, you see like people with different jerseys. Yes. They're standing next to right. each other while their guys are killing each other in the field. Right. And if you go to soccer games, you can't put the fans next to each other because right. they'll kill each other. Right. This is something that this country has that's very unique. Soccer games outside of America. Uh, outside of Soccer America. Soccer games yeah. here, you could, you'll find yeah. people, yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is something, it tells you a lot about the culture of right. this country. Right, Like you can disagree and just hang out, right. have a good time, and learn from each other, Arab, right? Arabs and Jews, Muslims and Jews get along better here than they get along in the Middle East. Uh, Turks and Armenians get along, Armenians get along here, better than they get along uh, in, in that part of the world. Uh, it is a country built on immigrants. Um, most people come here, their parents were immigrants. And it's a country built on an idea. And the idea is liberty, uh, justice, freedom, a constitutional government that limits the federal government and allows the federal government only to do a certain number of things. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Everything else is left to the people uh, and to the states. And it's a most successful democracy in, in the history of, of, uh, of the world. 
and it's all based upon the fact that we are all Americans, irrespective of your of your race, of your of your ethnicity. We're all Americans. That's one of the reasons CMAC. I've you've never heard me use a term. You know me now for a number of years. You never heard me use a term African American. I'm an American who is black. This African dash American whole thing is divisive. I was born, born in Los Angeles. My dad was born in Georgia. Uh, my dad's never been to Africa. I have, but my dad never have. This whole idea of African-American, I have friends who are Italian. They, they're not, they don't call themselves Italian-Americans or Greeks. They don't call themselves Greek-American, but black Americans call themselves African-Americans. I think it's ridiculous. And it, to me, it's a refutation of what America's all about. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt talked about uh, Americans who are hyphenated Americans, and he, and he criticized that. I'm not a hyphenated American. I'm an American who is black. Larry Alder, Epoch TV show host. It was great to have you on California Insider. It's been my pleasure. A couple of quick parting notes. I do have a book coming out uh, September 5 called As Goes California. You can now order it on Amazon.com or on Barnes & Noble. I also have a political action committee called ElderForAmerica.com. Throw something in the tip jar. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Great to see you. God bless. If you like the show and our content, you should go to InsiderCA.com and sign up to our newsletter because we never know what can happen with social media and other platforms in terms of distributing our content. If you'd like to come on the show and be an insider, you can reach out to us at CAinsider at EpochTimesCA.com. Again, it's CAinsider at EpochTimesCA.com. We would love to have you on the show to tell us what's going on in your field in California. Thank you for watching.